Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now Hear This is a music review podcast and is not directly affiliated with any artists or album projects discussed on the show. Think of us like your record collection come to life. Well, except for your MP3 file of Blink-182's What's My Age Again, you're 44, Tom, Travis, you're 45, and Mark, you're 48. You got a record of your favorite songs. You got an hour and it won't take long. You got a pair of brand new friends. You got a ticket gonna stick to the end. I said, now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this show. Joe Perendozzi, welcome to the Now Hear This program. You are here to talk with me this week about an album I've just, I never heard before, but you brought to the table. And uh, well, first of all, how the hell are you? I'm good. I'm terrified to be here. This is this is anxiety and nerves, and I'm I'm a fan of the show first, and I'm oh, I'm thanks. a I'm a friend of Ryan Brady's, obviously from a long time, and I'm excited to. Try and not screw this up royally. <laughs> well, you've actually been on the show before because you contributed to the Ryan Tribute episode. I did. Do you want to just tell people real quick how you met Ryan, what your relationship with him was? Yeah, Ryan and I go back to, to high school. We met through band. We were both musicians in the classic you know, band sense. And we realized we like a lot of the same music. We started performing music together, uh, along with Pat Frank, another voice that I think uh, we've yeah. heard. and Of the Frank Brothers. Yes, the, the very talented, <laughs> kind of obnoxiously talented Frank Brothers. Um, yeah, they really should cut it out already. Yeah, you yeah. know, it's like enough. We get it. <laughs> but yeah, it just we you know we stayed in touch over the years, and and you know, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, I mean, we got to see him. My, my fiance Shannon and I got to see him and Annabelle in Santa Barbara when we moved out here, yeah, um, yeah. and then six, uh, you know, that was in June. So however many months later, you know, yeah. he, he passed and it's been super sad, obviously, but it's been great meeting the other people in his life. I mean, this podcast and meeting you, Paul, and talking with you and Chris Mercer, who I'd kind of known for a little bit on the archive podcast. Yeah. And just kind of trying to stay in touch as best we can with these people, <laughs> these new people who, you know, we all share this, this great thing, this great person. 
but I'm yeah, it, that's why I'm so excited and so nervous to be here. This is like a great honor, but also I feel a little bit of pressure to like got to keep the content quality up. You know? <laughs> well, you've chosen a great album here. So you've broken, I should say at the top of this, you've broken the conceit a little bit. Oh, no. In the sense that we had those first four with Ryan we did this season and then the Annabelle one and then we were going to go through and do all the albums that Ryan had chosen. But you suggested this album we're going to talk about today, an album called Spilt Milk by the band Jellyfish. And the reason I was so compelled to want to do this, even though it wasn't on Ryan's list, is because Ryan and I had actually talked about this album a few times and talked about Jellyfish for a couple reasons, which I'll get into as we go through the episode. But as it turns out, when you sent me that email with Spilt Milk by Jellyfish in the email, I happened to be at my brother-in-law's in Las Vegas, and he is a, um, a radio personality there for iHeartMedia and uh, just knows everything everything about music. He was in a band in the 90s that was, you know, touring with like Smash Mouth and stuff. So he's got all this like knowledge at the ready. And he was telling me about the album Spilt Milk by the band Jellyfish the same night I got your email. And so I thought, this is too much kismet. <laughs> this has to happen. And of course, you know, Ryan and I had talked about it quite a bit. So I'm really happy you brought this one to the table because Jellyfish was a big old blind spot for me. Uh, what was your relationship with the band Jellyfish? I, that's super kooky. Um, so Pat Frank, actually, of the, of the Frank boys, um, I was driving back with him when Ryan was at Northwestern, we would go out to Evanston from, you know, from our various suburbs and go see him. And we were coming back and Pat Frank, just like in the car, apropos of nothing, just says, oh, you're going to listen to this. <laughs> and he's got the disc, the burned disc. And he says, you like Ben Folds, you know, you like the Beatles, you like Super Tramp, you like Queen, you're going to love these guys. And he pops it in and I still have that disc. That's the yeah. disc that I still listen to in the car as opposed to yeah, as opposed to Spotify still works. I love it. Not <laughs> not completely destroyed. But yeah, Pat Frank turned me on to this and he was right. This is all of the things that we loved kind of collectively. You know, Pat trends toward more metal and things like that. Ryan loved some of the more esoteric stuff, and I was a little bit more pop and mainstream, but where we all agreed this album was it, and I've loved it ever since. I go back to it all the time. Yeah, I had never done the trip but these guys were very familiar to me in ways i did not realize and well i guess i'll just talk about it right out the gate here aside from people throughout my life including ryan and then ultimately yourself and my brother-in-law telling me about this band jellyfish i was very familiar with them because the two founding members uh, andy and roger are all over Ringo Starr's 1992 album, Time Takes Time, and they're in the video. And they're in the video. And I never knew. I thought, honest to God, and this is a little embarrassing now, I always thought it was Timothy B. Schmidt up there with the Ringo and maybe one of the other all-stars because those guys look a little like eagles. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, no, the, the jellyfish are in the video for Way to the World, and that's amazing to me. And they also wrote this song, On Time Takes Time, I Don't Believe You, which as a teenager, an angsty New Jersey teen, you see, a righteous indignation aficionado angsty New Jersey teen. I really love that song because there's a teenage quality to it. 
about like you lied to me how could you and then you grow up and you realize people lie all the time uh it's not that big of a deal and you need to calm the fuck down They have that 60s flair. They have that, actually more than 60s flair. They're really early 70s flair, like really specific. And the the feeling I get when I listen to this album, Spilt Milk, is a sense of, were I talented enough or apt enough at instrumentation and could sing as well as Andy can... That's the kind of album I would make. And so I actually struggled a little bit to separate my own empathy for what this album represents from the music itself because I was seeing myself in the approach so much. Not that I'm capable of doing what these guys did, but I, if I was, this is what I would do. Now, you're a musician. You make music. Were these influential? These songs influential on your own uh, work and songwriting and stuff and... By the way, do you still play? Do you still you still rock out? What are you doing? Uh, it's it's a very uh, masturbatory process at this point. Sure. It's just for just for self pleasure in my home when my fiance is not trying to work. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I you know I still love playing music and just tone and figuring things out. I'm I'm I consider myself a lifelong novice. I, I may be better than I give myself credit for, but I will never feel that way. And so it's for me all about exploring things. I've done a little bit of jazz instruction and things to learn musical terms and and techniques and things. But largely, I just I listen and I pick things up and. I think you're exactly right. It's funny you mentioned feeling like if you had the chops, this would be what you would do. That is both why I love this album and also yeah. my major criticism of it is like this album is kind of like, oh, if I were clever with words and I were good at guitar, <laughs> I could have probably written a few of these things. No one can ever make the art that any one person makes, right? The whole I could have done that, my four-year-old could have done that is always... Right, right. The rejoinder is, but they didn't. <laughs> so, but they didn't. Hold, we hold that in our in our minds. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like this is right up my alley as well, and it hit it hits me in the feels and also in the brain. When I think of music, I like in a non-emotional way, music that I think is clever or yeah. where I'm like, yeah, I like what you did there, but it doesn't rouse me to anything. These guys also tick those boxes for me. And, I, and that's not a criticism for me, honestly. I'm, I want music that is intellectually stimulating as well as emotionally yeah. stimulating. It sounds like we're on a very similar wavelength here, which I'm sort of happy to find because when I talk about these things, my hope is that they don't come across as condescending because i i do have some criticisms of the album along those lines but again all of it is coming from a place of hey clearly these guys love the same shit i do like clearly they're very talented like i want to get all of that out of the way like whatever gripes i have about this thing and there really aren't that many it's all coming from a place of like 
yeah, but they did this great thing. And I'm so happy that you showed me this record. So before we get into the record itself, I'll get into the, the forming of the band a little bit. So the band boils down to this guy, Andy Sturmer, and Roger Joseph Manning Jr. And those two guys were high school friends in a place called Pleasanton, California. And they sort of played in bands and things and started writing songs when they were teenagers. And it's funny, their process is a lot of like, the more you dig into their history, and I didn't do a super deep dive, but I did a little bit. And the more you dig into their history, the more you kind of get the sense that maybe these aren't the most agreeable dudes in the world, actually. (laughs) Uh, There seems to be like a little bit of... Uh, I don't want to say ego, but one-upsmanship that maybe gets taken a little too far at certain junctures. But um, Andy uh, Sturmer was quoted as saying, it's not collaborative on every level, talking about songwriting with Roger. I write all the lyrics, but we write the music together. The way Roger and I write is that we embellish each other's ideas, like painting a picture. We grew up together and had a lot of the same records in our collection, so we don't have to explain our offbeat ideas to each other. So basically, they're using this shared history, this they came from the same primordial soup type thing, to be idea walls, you know, bouncing stuff off of each other. And it sounds like Andy is all is maybe a little more ready to be like, yeah, but I like do more, you know? <laughs> Uh, which is interesting because I have a real fetish for singer drummers, uh, particularly in rock bands. Um, and, you know, you, you take your Mickey Dolans, you know, uh, well, maybe not Phil Collins. I'm not, I'm not so into Genesis, but, you know, there, I've, I have a real love and affection for drummers who sing and, and do the, the songwriting. And so I find all of that very fascinating. So I find this Andy guy very to be very sort of captivating. And when you see him in these videos, and I don't know if you've, you've seen many of these videos, he's always got the eyeliner and the... He's got this crimped hair and wow. yeah, he's got a whole thing He's got a whole shtick going on. I mean, I've only it's funny, I haven't seen this group a lot, but one of the key things that was sort of pitched to me when Pat was showing me this a long time ago was he was like, "Oh, and the drummer stands up and sings." <laughs> yeah. And I, that's I remember playing a show with Pat where Pat was at an electronic drum kit standing and singing, and I was like, I see what you've done here, um, <laughs> yeah. and I like it, but that's kind of the only visual I have is them. I, I don't even remember what song it was. It was a grainy video in my mind, of, and then the drummers just standing at this massive kit, yeah. and that was unheard of to me. I was like, a drummer singing, apart from Ringo Starr, like Ringo yeah. gets a pass to do it, and everyone else, I, I don't even want to hear it. Phil Collins, to me, was either either singing or drumming in my mind yeah. he never did both even though i'm sure right. he did both and then this band shows up and i was like nope there's the there's the visual proof this is not only doable but it's freaking awesome yeah and they're quite remarkable to see like the, the musicianship is top notch i mean the band goes through quite a metamorphosis and we'll, we'll get to that in a moment but no matter who's playing in this group everyone's giving it their all it's clear that there's this love for this music love for this style and it com- that's why I sort of get the feeling it's coming from a fan place as opposed to a visionary or groundbreaking artist place. To me, this music sounds more like, I guess I would equate it more like to Oasis, hmm. like the pre-Oasis, or and not as far as Greta Van Fleet, obviously. like We're not going to go that far with it, but like they're more of like in this Oasis place where it's 
maybe a little more homage than Oasis, where they're clearly able to write good songs and deliver good content, but it is also very transparently from this place of uh, affection for a certain period of music, you know? Yeah, there's a... I know we're not going to get into press just yet, but there is a quote, and I, I forget where in my notes I put it, that mentions sort of the difference between homage and fromage. <laughs> and hey, I love that quote. Um, yeah, it's really funny. That's good. But I, but I think I think you're right. These guys are on the the kinder side of it, where it's meant to be. Hey, we love these things. Let's take the things we love and turn them into more things that other people can love. And right. um, you know, this is not going to be like a tour down memory lane thing at all. But when Ryan and I were making music together, that's that was patently what we were about too. We took. Every influence was so clear and easy yeah. to see and easy to hear, and that's not always bad. I mean, when a group like like this does it and does it well, I think you can see how powerful that can be. And then we we also see in this album, I think, some of the missteps or the the areas where it's like that's a little a little too much, right, like yeah. what we've heard before. Yeah, and it's funny you say that. I heard a lot of Ryan's music in this. And in fact, I thought Ryan's voice and Andy's voice sound kind of similar in spots. Maybe Andy has a bit more range, but it's funny when Andy belts, when he gives a real guttural howl, it was like the same howl Ryan does. I don't think it's because Ryan was like a jellyfish super fan, because I don't think that's true. But it is kind of funny to me in a, again, in that kismet sort of way that there's just so much similarity there. And again, I think we're all, we're all coming from the same kind of spiritual place with this stuff. So these guys are writing together. They're growing up together. And uh, the first big-ish stint was in this group called Beatnik Beach, which is funny because it's Beatnik spelled the way you'd think. And then Beach is spelled B-E-A-T-C-H, which is sort of odd. And that group was signed to Atlantic in the late 80s. And they released their eponymous debut album uh, with Andy and Roger in, in the group. I guess Andy and Roger got buddy buddy with their A and R man at Atlantic and were trying to find an out from Beatnik Beach to do their own project. And as it turned out, this A&R guy at Atlantic was really their only major advocate. And so that guy wound up leaving, forming his own label called Charisma Records. And that's where Jellyfish ultimately sort of took form. And it's funny, the name Jellyfish comes from some Atlantic executive tossing it out in conversation. And everyone's like, that's stupid. We're not going to call ourselves that. <laughs> And then when it came to when they actually recorded their first album Belly Button, it came time they had like had to pick a name. They're like, well, I guess I guess we're the fucking jellyfish. Like I don't <laughs> like no one anyone have any, literally anything better. The answer no. Okay, I guess we're the jellyfish. And so that's kind of a funny story. I I gotta say I'm not super into the name. To me, the name, and maybe it's just because of the visuals. The name kind of dates the group a little bit because it does sound like a very early 90s it does name it does you're you're right about that i mean there's a lot i think packaging wise about this that just screams 
a very specific part of a very specific decade. <laughs> and if you love it, you're going to love it. And if you're kind of not terribly into what was coming out in the early 90s, right. it's kind of right in your face. It is a little in your face. Well, I mean, the cover to that first album, Belly Button, he's got this one of those big like it's not a dr seuss hat but it's like one of it's it may as well be on its way there so it's it's like oh i know exactly when this was made simply by looking at the cover (laughs) okay so they record that album and to record that album they bring in two people to to flesh out the group one of which is roger's brother chris and the other is a, a name we've brought up on this show a lot jason faulkner was in that belly button iteration of the group. And Jason Faulkner is notable for a lot of different things, but specifically on the Now Here This podcast, we talked about him because he played guitar with Beck. And uh, so in our Modern Guilt episode, we talk about Jason Faulkner. Jason Faulkner also plays on Chaos and Creation in the Backyard from Paul McCartney in 2005. He has his own sort of career, but I just sort of got really, really hyper interested in some of these other groups he was a part of, specifically Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds, which is funny to me because we were just fucking talking about Oasis. <laughs> and uh, I actually don't mind that that High Flying Birds album from 2017. It's I don't know if you've heard it at all, but it's sort of like basically just Oasis, but a little bouncier or something. He was also in a group called TV Eyes, and TV Eyes, and I guess he must have been in there when I'm thinking, because on my other show, The Third Men Podcast, we talked to this other group, the individual members of this group called The Dirt Bombs, who toured with TV Eyes and mentioned Jason Faulkner, too. So Faulkner's this guy who's been sort of on my (laughs) periphery for a while. And the guitar on that first record is really good. Mm. I don't know how familiar you are with Belly Button, but... I think I listened to it in once I was like, yeah. ooh, Spilt Milk, love Spilt Milk, went back to Belly Button, was not as into it, and I think it, it didn't make the 20-year journey to, to hear uh, the way that Spilt Milk did for me. a lot different um and i was wondering why all these websites were comparing jellyfish to paul mccartney because i don't really hear it all that much on spilt milk but when you listen to belly button there is just ram wildlife era wings all over that thing i listened to a version with the vocals stripped out and when you hear faulkner's guitar it's very clear there was an influence there and so again all of that is shit I love. Like that's my DNA. Again, dude, they're never they're never not playing anything I don't love already. So that's neither here nor there. But I guess they went on this big tour after Belly Button came out. Belly Button didn't really do gangbusters. I think it hit like a number one twenty one in the U.S. Billboard Top one hundred or something in that region. And they did like a little bit better in the U.K. And they went on this huge world tour. And it seemed like they were on the precipice. Like, oh, this is a group on the rise. Got to watch out for these guys. I'm sure they were on some 
Heat Seekers thing or like Rolling Stones artist to watch, whatever it was. I, I don't know that for sure. Without knowing it for sure, I'm fairly certain it made somebody's fucking list along those lines. So they're on tour. They're trying to build this fan base. And I guess Andy and Roger's desire for creative control, shall we say, uh, possibly alienated some of the other band members to the point where the band actually dissolves after that after that belly button tour. So you get their first album, it's released in ni- 1990. It's on its way up. And then it was just after the touring that Faulkner and Chris Manning leave the group. So they were the ones that were brought in with Andy and Roger, and then they're the ones who leave. Faulkner, I guess, got into a lot of musical differences type arguments to the point where I guess he actually manifested an ulcer and was like, I've had enough of this. I'm leaving. And then Chris, uh, yeah, (laughs) Chris is Roger's brother. And so there's not quite as much ill will there, but um, I guess Chris was like, yeah, I don't like being a rock star. I'm just going to be a producer, which is sort of funny to me that it plays into this idea that they weren't, and again, this is going to sound a little condescending. I don't mean it that way. But it plays into this notion that they're all pretending to be rock stars. <laughs> like they're doing almost like a cosplay or, or something. Like this whole thing is like a 70s rocker cosplay. That's the vibe I get. And I guess to the point where one of their band members is just like, yeah, you know what? This rock star thing is not for me. I don't, I don't care for this <laughs> at all. I wonder if that feeds into, I mean, it's one thing to be good at music and to be good at writing it and creating it and producing it as well. Producing is obviously a whole different ball yeah. game in many ways, but there's a whole nother energy and mindset and sort of ability to weather that it takes to be... I mean, I, dear God, I've never come anywhere close to famous. I remember being on a stage at like a battle of the bands that was fairly well attended because it it was the last thing before Eagle Eye Cherry or something like that, or the Gin Blossoms <laughs> or some other band was going on in a different tent. And so we had a lot of people, and I was couldn't do. I was nervous as all get out. I was like, I would never want to do this all the time. This <laughs> this would kill me. And I think I can see that being the case here, where yeah, if you're if you're Chris Manning, talented clearly good at this whole music thing but you're like i don't i just don't want to do this yeah you know hand waving at the the general kind of out there putting yourself out there and and all the conflicts that come with it i mean if you're right about andy being the de facto front man or the self-appointed front man in a lot of ways that's hard to (laughs) that's hard to deal with if you're also contributing and you're contributing maybe in some cases even more than you're getting credit for you're just like, why not? I'm just going to be in the back. I'm just going to help other people. I'm going to go do this producer thing. Get me out of here. Yeah, and and I, I respect that. You know, I, I wound up there in my own artistic journey. It wasn't because I felt as though, in my case, it was a question of, I don't think I have the actual chops to do art professionally in a way that will sustain myself in a secure way. But... I know what I like and I actually wound up enjoying crafting and guiding and helping others art and collaborating in that sense more than I actually enjoyed doing the act myself. And so I can relate to where Chris is coming from too in that sense because, yeah, sometimes there is a a separate joy or sometimes your brain is just wired differently than some of these rock and roll front men where you you enjoy the support role. Yeah. Which I, I can relate to again. So... The band splits up for all intents and purposes, but 
there's still enough heat on their tour and they're still signed to charisma you know their A&R guy is still supportive of them and so after the tour that's when Manning and Sturmer go into the studio with Ringo Starr <laughs> for Time Takes Time and yeah they contribute uh, on, a, on a number of tracks I think it's like three or four of the tracks on the record That's my favorite Ringo album. In fact, it was on my list to uh, to go through with Ryan. Actually, time takes time, but we got to his first, and that'll be. Uh, be folks will have already heard that one. We did Ryan's Ringo contribution, which was Old Wave, which is another bizarre Ringo record, which I love. But uh, anyway, yeah. So time takes time is wonderful. It has that Beatley sixties ish, early mid early seventies flair on it. Anyway, so it makes sense that Ringo's people looking to inject some new life into Ringo's sound would have found contemporary artists who could create that sort of thing. Much in the same way as like, I don't know if you heard "Good Times" by the Monkees, but they brought in like Rivers Cuomo and Noel Gallagher and some of these other like legacy rockers or rockers who had that 60s 70s like at least the chops to do it well and they had them come in and write songs for the monkeys and it sounded great because it sounded like modern monkeys and it was quite good so that's sort of what they did with time takes time there was also a song i love this there was also a songwriting collaboration that was set up with brian wilson (laughs) everybody's favorite hamburger boy (laughs) who i just saw live two weeks ago at the time of this recording who it did not look well i know old bry guy's not old bry guy's hanging in there i guess but he's uh, there's only so long you can keep up that amount of stuff going on in your head i think yeah like the world weighs heavy (laughs) on brian wilson in a way that maybe it doesn't on others and i uh, he is such a preternatural talent I feel bad about it, but I've seen, I've seen pictures and I've heard like, Oh, he's still performing. And I I just don't, I don't understand how, like, just take a rest, man. I, well, that's, I'm happy is cause I, I discovered him so late in his life that I'm happy I was able to catch him. And it was ultimate, like not to go down this rabbit hole too much, but it was ultimately like the quintessential Brian Wilson experience. Cause there was a point in the show where he stopped singing and it was very clear that the band was in like, Brian isn't singing mode and we have to power through these songs to get to the end as quickly as possible. And it was a little shaky there. Like there was a point in which I'm like, is, is he going to make it to the end of this show? Oh, wow. And he did, you know, for in Brian's defense, he did, you know, but (laughs) it was, uh, it was a little touch and go there. But anyway, so they, they wrote with Brian in the early nineties. Apparently it didn't amount to anything, uh, which is funny to me because, Again, not to, not to keep plugging the Third Men podcast, but on that show we interviewed an artist named April March, wonderful artist, and she also was put on a songwriting play date with Brian Wilson in the early '90s, which also didn't yield anything. Hmm. It's sort of funny to me that Brian, at that point in his career, he was like back, and he had released that album, and he was sort of like, "I've got my marbles again," and and so all of these contemporary musicians sort of rushed in to kind of like. <laughs> learn from the master you know but i ultimately it was a fruitless a relatively fruitless endeavor 
Uh, oh, the 90s, huh? It was I, a wild time. I was going to say, that's that's so interesting to me. And just the idea of, yeah, we spent like a day with Brian Wilson, and um, he's a nice guy. That's it. Yeah. We learned the directions <laughs> to his house. Um, <laughs> Makes a mean iced tea. Oh, the iced tea on that man. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, so they're being treated, these uh, Andy and Roger are being treated like the du jour legacy artists of the moment. And it was around that time that they started writing the album that would become Spilt Milk. So I guess after playing with Ringo and writing with Brian and this and that, they decided that it was time to make their masterpiece. Mm. And maybe a little band on the runny in that way where the band kind of splits up and they feel like, all right, we're going to do a really good one and show them or whatever. And so that's where Spilled Milk comes from. The way we we make records Mm -hmm. is... um, we try to do as much pre-production as possible. We sit up in, in my house and um, Roger and I mm-hmm. and uh, experiment and, and tweak things until we've got them. And then, because you know, if you're paying two thousand dollars a day in a recording studio, that's and then you hire a fifteen thousand dollars string section, that's not the time to figure out that the part that you wrote doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we just try to do as much pre-production as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we you know we probably spent too much money, but yeah, I mean we it was really an effort. Um, the really really the way we make records is we're just blown away that somebody is allowing us to do this. That we actually don't have to pay the studio bill. I guess we do in the end, but so we always we always think that we're just going to wake up from this dream. So we just make we keep making records like it's the last record we'll ever get to make in our life. Right, yeah. right. Apparently, apparently Andy and Roger were so fired up after these uh, classic rock encounters that they may have pushed themselves a little too far. And uh, there's a story where they go and meet a friend at a at a diner fairly late at night. And they have this meal, and then the guy's like, all right, well, I'm going to go back to the studio. And it was like 3 a.m. I read, I caught that story, and everyone, because everyone was still there, actually still working, like, yeah, yeah, we got to, we got to get back at it. Yeah, that's, that's dedication. And that's, you know, hopefully people are making overtime on that. I hope so. Yeah. And it does account for the sound of the record, which, again, we will get into, but which is robust, shall I say. It's just. A lot happening. <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess it was delivered so late and so over budget that that's where the title Spilt Milk comes from because there was no use crying over it. And so this interesting sort of defiance there, you know, a little they're poking fun at their own sort of misfortune. But I think that they genuinely thought like this was going to be there. This is going to be it. Like this is going to do it. And as we'll see, it didn't quite. I mean, it reached, <laughs> it reached like, and not to spoil things, but just to provide a bit of context here, you know, it's a cult album. And I think it actually had got, has gotten better over time. But the real odd right place, wrong timeness of it all comes in where, you know, they start in 90, where this kind of sound is very in vogue. Mm. You think about, like, I don't know if you ever did the Friends trip, but you think about those early seasons of Friends, and it's all 60s-sounding songs. They're all dressed looking like the 60s or early 70s, stuff like that. But then there's a moment where Nirvana changes that, and in the time they from their first album to their second album, grunge had come in. 
and came in big. And suddenly these guys jumping around singing songs that sound a lot like Queen <laughs> with big flowers and colorful glasses in the 60s, 70s, uh, it's no longer cool. And the album ultimately doesn't go anywhere, which is kind of a tragedy because I feel like if this album was released in the early 70s, first of all, or even the late 80s, maybe around the time of their first album, uh, Belly Button, in 1990, maybe it would have done a lot better. But sadly, it, it didn't. And like I said, we'll get to that more when we do the reception. Yeah, I think if you um, tracked when the Wurlitzer or the Harpsichord were popular, <laughs> then you could figure out when this album would have done better than it, than it did. Um <laughs> Where do you land on harpsichord in uh, rock music? Where do you land on that? I I am pro Wurlitzer. I I don't I don't think I'm I don't think I like the harpsichord sound as much. Yeah. Other than buried so deep in the mix that you can't hear it unless somebody tells you it's there, and then you're like, oh, yes, <laughs> I can hear that now. I think that's where I have to. I, McCarty seems like he got one for like a gift or something and they just started using it on everything at a certain point in his career and I'm just like enough that's how it happens I guarantee you somebody's like yo I found this I got it working again we're putting it on everything and it's just clangy strings in the background for two albums yeah so uh, this album was released on February 9th 1993 as I mentioned on Charisma Records and it was produced by Andy and Roger along with this guy Al B. Gluten? Gluten. Gluten? Who produced nearly all of the big hits by the Bee Gees. You know, all of them, name them. And also shit like Islands in the Stream (laughs) and Knocking on Heaven's Door. Like wild blockbuster stuff, which I thought was really funny. Bit of a hit maker. He was a hit maker, yeah. And then this guy, Jack Joseph Pugue? Puig? Puig? I'm not even going to try. P-U-I-G. He was the A&R guy that believed in these guys and and wound up founding Charisma Records, so he was also credited as um, a producer. And then, interestingly enough, T-Bone Burnett contributes some... Yeah, I I mentioned that in the email. I think I saw his name pop up, and I'm like, ooh, a person in the music industry whose name I know, first of all. Yeah. Um, But yeah, I thought that was an an odd addition. I mean, it seems like with Faulkner and with Galutin, you've got these sort of folks who either already had a long-storied history or went on to have a long-storied history. And to me, T-Bone Bermette is almost an outlier in that. That's that's like mega-level... Yeah. In my mind. And I couldn't find, I didn't dig terribly deep, but I couldn't really find much more other than he was, he was there. He was there. Yeah. Any number of reasons I could speculate. It may have something to do with this other thing that came up when I was researching this record. I had actually a tough time tracking down where they actually recorded this stuff Hmm. because everything I found was just like, it was a bunch of studios in LA. And so if that's the case then it wouldn't be so odd to me that a T-Bone Burnett or something might have crossed paths with them, or maybe he had some connection to the Joseph Puig guy from um, Atlantic, maybe. I don't know. That's all speculation. But before we get into the album here, uh, this show does have a tradition where we saunter over to a place called Paul's Bullet Corner. Would you care to join me, Joe? I will join you, and I am so very, very excited about this, because <laughs> this is one of my favorite segments, and I this is just unbridled joy for me. So please, okay, bullet away. <laughs> Good morning. 
I'm gonna be your instructor. Okay, I know you're anxious to jump right in. So I wrote four for this one, but I don't I don't love any of them, but I I think ultimately they compose they compose the fog of the mood that passed through my brain when listening to this. So my first one is 73 to 93 Rip Van Rock and Rollers. Nice. They fell asleep 73, woke up in 93, and here we are. <laughs> As I was listening to this, the more I was thinking about it, the more I'm like, every sound on this album I think is from 1973, like specifically that year. <laughs> anyway, uh, bullet point number two, unsurpassed fansters of the rear view mirror. Oof, I like fansters. Yeah. I don't know if that's a real word, but I'm I'm here for it. Thank you. Yeah. I was going to call them masters, and I was like, mm. eh, that's too generous. <laughs> Discovering the missing link was on your plate all along. Ooh. Kind of a missing linky sort of group here. Yeah, tying together. I mean, that that ties in with the the seventy three to ninety three thing. It's like this is a connective tissue kind of album, um, yeah. but it also partakes of like this huge missing chunk of music before it. <laughs> yeah, right, and and after it too, because you get. I mean, there's a lot of sounds of nineties and two thousands power pop. I would argue that this group was probably maybe not just as influential to the groups that came after it as they were influenced by the groups that came before it, but certainly influential in the sense that you can hear indie rock in this. You can hear where that evolved to. You can hear a lot of things in this uh, sound, even to the point of some of the harder, like Ben Folds. We talk about Ben Folds. You can hear where that came from all over this. So that's sort of power poppy piano stuff, but shocking that they were doing this at a time where it was so unpopular and they didn't get the accolades that they maybe should have gotten or would have gotten at a different time but wound up being very influential it's kind of poetic in that way yeah which leads to my last bullet here so many left turns you wind up right again Ooh, Um, i like that a lot because this is you said this earlier but there's there was a review that i found that said you know 15 years later they reviewed this and and i think ranked it higher than it had been originally they kind of like re-ranked this and other songs and and this is yeah definitely an album that i think gets better over time when you look back versus how it would have been received right then yeah uh, well, what do you say? Should we get into the album here? Can I... Oh, please. I, I try... I attempted a bullet. Oh, thank God. Yeah, go for <laughs> it. I love it. All right. We, we, did, we did have this... We were calling these ricochets, so I'm going to use the ricochet... <laughs> humbly accept that should this make it to the final cut because <laughs> we can we can cut it if this is terrible poet i am not uh. all right all boys no beach all super no tramp whoa i love that <laughs> that's awesome all boys no beach fuck yeah <laughs> yeah i i that was the first thing that popped in my head when i was like thank you thank you very much i'll, I'll take a polite golf clap um but yeah uh there's just so much of all these influences but it it tends to be lacking like a key component of it right there's no surf in any of this but it's very clearly 
Beach Boys and Brian Wilson influence, and you know, obviously they even they even worked with the guy. So yeah, right, right. that was the first thing that came in my head. I'm like, it's you're missing like half each time. I know. Well, I love the all super no tramp too because even in the song where they deal with like rock and roll casualty, and we'll get to that in a moment, it doesn't quite feel lived in. It almost feels like uh, I don't know. There's a, there's such a degree of separation. So like yeah, there's super. But, you know, sometimes for the music to really ring true, you actually need the tramp in there. And I don't, I don't know if they have that, but uh, who am I? They might have been colossal drug addicts and fuck-ups for all I know. I don't really know. But that does bring us to track number one, Hush. Which is an odd lullaby to start this album. I think this is a direct nod to Our Prayer. And it leads into not uh, joining a fan club, not to jump ahead, but, and I forget the, the second track, it's like Odd G or something like that. Or, yeah, um, G, yeah. They're not so similar, but it is a similar transition from this very vocal, harmony-heavy, uh, very yeah. lullaby-like thing into something a bit more raucous and it just i was just like they had to have known somehow but maybe the timeline doesn't work and these guys are just channeling brian yeah. wilson this guy was trying to make a masterpiece or what he perceived to be a masterpiece clearly he's a fan of these sort of experimental bands this does seem like something you would do at the top of an experimental quote-unquote masterpiece although it's interesting the the first note i had about the harmonies was that the queen influence is obviously one of the prominent and most pronounced for me on the record and these kinds of churchy harmonies to me carry more of the melodrama of queen than they do of the texture of the beach boys Hmm. and so i wasn't actually hearing i mean aside from the our prayer connection much beach boys in this i was hearing more of a queen thing I'd um, agree yeah. with that on the I, I think the vocal ranges of that that are in play here are more queen there's not as much low end like there is in yeah. Beach Boys harmonies. I think Beach Boys harmonies sometimes like twelve parts and it's there's some real ba- you know, basso profundo stuff in there and this is almost all, you know, tenor and above in most cases. Um it's one of the reasons why I love it. I'm a tenor when I sing and I'm like, <laughs> I can hit all these notes. Yay. Yeah. Um but I agree with you. I, I think th- I think it is more queen. It's more the structure for the for the Beach Boys sort of reference for for me. Um yeah. yeah. I love this. I don't know if you like this. Do you like this? Uh, yeah. It's an odd way to start the album, but I thought it was I thought it was a nice way to start the album. And it it gave me a a hint of what I was in for. Because before I knew their history or anything like that, I, and I always do a cold listen first, just listen to it straight cold. And that listen is always very different from after I learned some of the history. And opening an album like this, what that says to me is, this is not standard rock fare of the time, but there are familiar tropes. And so it, it does cleanse the or it does prepare your palate <laughs> to ingest this meal <laughs> that you're about to get. A little amuse-bouche. Uh, right, yeah. yeah. A little creme fraiche. <laughs> uh, before joining a fan club, track two. She turned the nightlight on and blew him a kiss He stared back through his green crayola eyes She chased his light 
with a disc Next to the box that promised her the biggest prize Now, I when just listening to it cold and I didn't have the tracks in front of me, I thought this was all part of the same song. I thought uh, Hush was just an intro for this. But again, we get that contrast that was giving me that queen energy, that lullaby sort of stuff, and then boom, and then you're into this rock song. And it, it's a solid rock tune for me. I mean, this one sounds a lot like, I don't know how uh, if you like Big Star, but this, this mm. one has some Big Star uh, vibes on it for me. I don't know them. Power pop, you know. Yeah, guitar-driven. I mean, I think if this song had more swing to it, it would remind me of Killer Queen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but because it's a little more straight, there's the, the and that to me is a, a kind of a major difference between a lot of what Queen's doing and a lot of what these guys are doing is just the jazz influence is less here, except for one example later on that we'll we'll talk about. But yeah, this song is exactly what I want. This I my first note is just yes in all capital letters because <laughs> I will love this song forever, um, and and not even yeah. lyrically. I I could if this if the lyrics here were dribble just nonsensical stuff. I yeah. would still love it because this is just so epic. Andy hits a high D sharp in this at the end in the key change, which is just musical heaven to my ears and my brain. <laughs> um, and I just think, you know, so many interesting modulations and, and changes and things. And I, I just can't, I can't get enough of this kind of stuff. Yeah. Shake that booty for me. St. Pinocchio. Is that what he says? I mean, again, nonsensical, but I don't care. <laughs> I love it, though. I love it. Yeah, again, at the top of this record, he gives you everything. He tells you, this is what this record is. It's these, And it's in Hush, and it's in Joining a Fan Club. You're going to get contrast. You're going to get a classic rock sound. And you're going to get some crazy cool instrumentation. And as you pointed out, the vocal, I think, and I'll, I'll use this opportunity to touch on this, so the production for me on this album is the star. Mm. I like it more than the songs. I like it more than the instrumentation. I think the production is almost everything about this record. And it it is over the top. <laughs> it is an entire Home Depot's worth of kitchen sinks. <laughs> there is so much happening all the time. But the thing that makes it not like the wall of sound is that they are doing this at a point in history where stereo panning, I guess, has become a real thing. Because when you listen to this thing, where everything is placed in the sonic space is always so interesting. And so at a certain point, I'm like, is that a fucking banjo? Like, <laughs> what? And and I was listening to it on a run and, and there's like breaking glass, like all over in the back of your head in the studio, in the, in the sonic space. And I'm like, what the, f-? like, I thought that there was like glass shattering behind me. It scared the bejesus out of me. But because of that, there's always something to enjoy in a new way about it. It's like doing a rewatch of The Office. There's so many jokes all the time that you can watch that show a few times and still get something out of it because maybe you didn't catch this joke from the last time. It's that kind of thing here. I am the walrus, ELO, that kind of stuff. A lot is happening. And I think I saw some reviewers call the album, you know, maybe decadent or overindulgent, which I maybe, you know, uh, all things being equal, maybe they're right. I just found it interesting and fun. 
It's a um, it's an album and this song in particular that makes you think maybe I need better headphones, maybe yeah. I need some because you want to pick out all of this little stuff. And I remember you know listening to it on a burn CD in my car in the early two thousands, not hearing a lot of the stuff that I can hear now. Listening yeah. to re, you know, uh, I think there was a remaster and or re release in 2015 that had you know, just better quality bit rate things, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I can I can pick up like you said the breaking glass and all that stuff, and yeah, there's banjo on a couple of tracks in the yeah. back that you wouldn't get, and I I think it pushes you to want to hear that stuff, which is, you know, almost as important as having it in the first place is actually placing it where people think about it and be like, ooh, I wanna I'm gonna go back, yeah. And see if I can hear that again and hear what it's doing in the whole. Right. Yeah. And and maybe I don't know how much of my experience was colored by the remaster. I don't know if it was remixed or not. Um, so maybe that wasn't what was necessarily heard at the time. But it's definitely what comes through the speakers or the the headphones. And um, when you listen to their first album, it's a little flatter. It's not quite so spherical for lack of a better word it's it it hits you like you could hear that album in mono and it wouldn't really bother you but um yeah just really fascinating the choices that were being made and i am very very impressed with the production on this all the way up and down this song right into track three here sabrina paste and plateau play-doh play-doh sabrina paste and play-doh a nice little pun there far behind the forest of flying paper Airplanes grazing on the grounds of ponytails The substitute is counting down her ticks till recess Hammering down to size her fingernails Because today Sandwiches and chips for all the shoulders Lunch is on the table, soon dessert is on the floor Yeah, this has got uh, a little bit of McCartney on it, but I actually heard more. I was more interested in hearing the Ben Folds of you know influence. Like when to me, it was clear that somebody like Ben Folds was listening to this song. I agree. There's an irreverence here too that I think is mishandled in lesser hands, I guess. <laughs> but you know, because this is this is this, this is a song for every kid who's ever like fallen in love with their elementary school teacher. You know, shout out to Miss Engelkin's fourth, uh, sixth grade, sixth grade, um, and that can that can fall super flat or be super cheesy and chintzy. I mean, it's a short song too; it's like two and a half minutes tops. Yeah. But these guys, I think, handle it so well, and that helps influence other people. I think that lets people like Ben Folds make more irreverent, lighter, you know, just all across the board, lighter instrumentation, lighter vocals, lighter content. Without songs like this, I I, I think people don't take that risk. Yeah. And I'm not somebody who loves character songs so much because I don't know. There's something that I really respond to of an you know an artist relaying something a bit more personal, or maybe being more transparent with the autobiographical nature of art, which is in everything. You know, so even in these character songs, it's still autobiography. But um, I, I don't always love them because I do feel sometimes uh, like they feel a bit uh, labored or manufactured or, or intentionally like, all right, I can almost see the process in a way that I would care not to see the process in a song like that. Although in a song like this, I, it works because it is so fun. 
And, you know, there are times where it works. Rocky Raccoon, you know, things, things that are sort of over the top, but don't take themselves too terribly seriously. And again, even if I was going to be frustrated at something like that, which I'm not really with this song, but even if I was, the production in is so fucking good. There's a moment, there's a moment where the drumming switches pattern midway through the track. And it's just a, another one of those left turns I was talking about where it's just like, whoop, we're going this way. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> and then before you know it, you're back at the beginning. You're like, what the fuck? Really compelling, captivating songs. I particularly like the vocal on this one. And yes. for one very specific reason, there are singers, obviously in the rock pantheon and in the pop pantheon, with very, very interesting, unique and largely sort of in the baritone range voices. And then there are sort of the more nasally, often gentlemen, who I feel like are, are at a bit of a disadvantage unless you're Paul Simon. And in this case, just starting out with the far behind the forest of flying paper airplane. Yeah. <laughs> like, I listen to this song and I go, that's what I sound like when you don't run me through any kind of filters or anything. And I just feel like it's it's owned so well. And maybe this is the production, right? This is, I think, exactly what you're talking about. The people working to take... Andy's vocals and turn yeah. it into this wide variety of, of lead stems. I think they're they're working overtime on this and doing so much to make this a great album. For sure, yeah. Lots of things to keep you interested. I've remarked on the vocal on this one too. Again, giving me more like really I don't know if he was intentionally trying to go for a Freddie Mercury thing, but it does seem at a certain point, I don't think he obviously no one has the <laughs> voice Freddie Mercury had. So he's not going to ever get there. But there did seem to be an intentional... I mean, I, I would be shocked if these guys weren't big Queen fans. Like, I have to believe they were. But um, again, this was this is when I'm still listening to this, not really hearing Beach Boys. I'm hearing right. Night at the Opera. I'm hearing jazz. You know, I'm hearing those albums. But that brings us to track four here, New Mistake, which in this sequence of songs became a favorite of mine. it's a highlight for me on the record some waltz time i think in this one yeah and it was the second uh single off the album in in 93 and it peaked at number 55 in the uk did not chart over here backed with he's my best friend i love this song and in fact you talk about i don't you saying like uh i saw a grainy video of him playing drums standing up i think you might have been looking at this video because i found it on youtube but it was it was very, very grainy. They, they, they never cleaned this one up. They cleaned up the other one, but they never cleaned this one up. I think that's right. I love this song, and I like it more than The Ghost Number 1. Frankly, I think this is a great, great choice for a single and just a really beautiful track. I agree. I think that swinging 6-8 or whatever it is is not... I don't want to say odd because lots of people have worked with, you know, 3-4 time signatures and non-4-4, non-2-4, but it feels different enough where I'm really excited when it works well. And I think that 
the instrumental bridge in the middle, the yeah. outro, that syncopated, whirly, that's the Supertramp moments that I love. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, right, yeah. And and I think even lyrically, too, you know, it's a, it's a song about a, a kind of a specific thing, an accidental pregnancy, and, you know, looking back fondly, and I, I think... Subject matter is always tricky with these things, but there's n- there's nothing about it that pulls me out of the moment of the song lyrically, and so I'm singing along, I- I'm understanding what the song is telling me, but I'm also just in it in the moment and not thinking too hard about it. I, I referenced in my notes, you know, Ben Fold's Brick had this, mm. and then it lost it when people kind of figured out that like, ooh, look, a song about abortion that's not preachy, and it kind of ruined it, because now that's all I think about when I hear that song, even though it's a good song. Right. Um, but yeah, I, there's so much on here to, to love, and I, I wish this had been the big hit. I think Ghost it should have been. Yeah, Ghost of Number One, I think, also good, but not, it's the wrong order. Uh, yeah, I agree. Although, if a song like this wasn't going to hit, it goes, or if a song like Ghost of, I well, we'll get to Ghost at Number One. I can understand why that was the choice, but the thing you mentioned, Super Tramp, that you better catch me when I fall. That's yeah. so Super Tramp, and they go into that. That was really a hook for me because I love Super Tramp, and then you get all this other stuff. You get those like there's like handbells at one point and a string quartet, and again, that's that kitchen sink. There's just so much there, so many nooks and crannies. Yeah, to look at, and then. There are lyrical nooks and crannies, too. Lines like, my sugar trampoline. <laughs> you know, like, a little shit like that where you're like, what? And I was struggling to find out what these songs actually meant when I was listening to it. And ultimately, I landed on I don't really care that much, so I wasn't going to like go into it too much. But those little sprinkles of clever lines and stuff are, to me, acting in the same way as the production, where there's just a lot of little shit to look at everywhere. Yeah. Um, so it keeps you interested. I swear it was on this podcast. You were talking to somebody, maybe it was maybe it was the Annabelle episode recently, but someone said flat out, like, I got asked once what is you know, what does a lyric mean? And I said, I don't know, the words just sound cool together. <laughs> and I my sugar trampoline, I don't have any problems with that. That doesn't have to have meaning ever. Yeah. And I just like the way it sounds when they sing it. I like the way it sounds when I sing it while listening to them sing it. And I, I think if you've got that, you know, you don't want to overwork it. You don't want to go back. I think McCartney actually yeah. does this a ton, right? Like you just find a lyric that works and you're like, I don't need to revise that after all. Yeah, the one I always point to for him is like, like a Lucifer, you'll always shine. Although I guess Chris had pointed out that, that, that there, there's some kind of Lucifer diamond or something. Anyway, yeah, lots to love about New Mistake. Which brings us to track five here, Glutton of Sympathy. This is the This is a nice track five because we start out in Acoustic Town a little bit, and there's that um, that wonderful line about uh, sitting alone in the dark is a sad cliche or something like that, which is yep. really really funny to me. So again, lots of those little things, but this one does build. You know, it's uh, it doesn't uh, stay in acoustic territory forever. But I like them when they're living in acoustic territory. Yeah, th- I compare this and Russian Hill 
And this is my mm -hmm. preferred, you know, of the two. I like this one better. Interesting. Yeah, Russian Hill, I think. Uh, so I'm, rever I'm reversed on that one. So I, I, I did the same thing. I compared the two and I, I fall on Russian yeah, Hill. Yeah, I think Russian Hill is better. But for whatever reason, if I'm like, I, have, I can pick one to listen to, I would go with yeah. Glutton of Sympathy. And I, I don't know that I have a good reason why. But I do like that just, yeah, they can bring it down. The, the album is paced well. The, and mm -hmm. I think, we, like you said, this is a good track five because it feels like we've had a lot in the front. We need a little bit of a break, but not too much of a break. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and, and what I like too is that my highlights, the, the favorite tracks of mine on the record are sprinkled in different spots. So there are different... I always love it when that happens when you're listening to an album and you're like, oh, let's say track two is your favorite, but you also know that track seven is like a real fucking banger too. And so it actually helps bring you through some of the other tracks you may not normally have been all that interested in listening to. For me, part of the anticipation is knowing there's this crazy thing going to happen at the end. And uh, and so, yeah, anyway, this, this is a good, this is a nice little track. Before I knew that they had worked with Ringo, I was thinking oh they're using that lick that Ringo and George and all these people use that dun, 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 from way to the world dun, 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 dun. Ah. that's all over this thing too and I was wondering like what yeah they must be doing this for uh, for a reason <laughs> and then I realized oh well it's because they worked with Ringo um, but yeah not not groundbreaking chord progressions or anything again they're doing this kind of by the book but they also can't help themselves but to keep putting little shit everywhere <laughs> and i do love it you know so even when i'm like oh that's a little expected i'm like but is that a flugelhorn like i think that might be a flugelhorn smart on their part to re retain interest in that way yeah i think uh, this is another song too that has a large instrumental patch in the middle and uh, there's a conversation i think happening now about like what happened to the bridge where did the bridge go in yeah. modern music and I think one of the reasons I like coming back to this is that f it feels different now. And that's where a lot of those interesting little touches live. You know, an interesting mm -hmm. placed horn part here or there often, I think, in this album is showing up in the middle eight and taking the place of almost what where lyrics might have been otherwise, yeah. uh, which is one of the reasons why I like those things. Because I think, oh, that's you, somebody could have sung that, but you didn't. And I like it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the bridge is i don't want to say a lost art because i'm sure somebody's doing it well out there and i'm just not paying attention but i do love a good bridge and these guys these guys know how to write a good bridge which brings us to track six here the first lead-off single of the album the ghost at number one This peaked at number nine on the alternative charts. So that's, I think, about as good as they do just period. Ever, um, yeah. Yeah. And it does have a harder edge sound, and it does make sense to me that if people were rolling their eyes at the 60s fun stuff, it does make sense to me that this would be the one that would have some kind of mass appeal at that time. Because 
it's a little darker. I mean, again, it's about a rock and roll casualty, I think. That line, so he shoots up his poison until his frosting tasted sweet. Something like that. Yep. Even the critics can't outrun the ghost of number one. Again, I was thinking this sounds a little hollow, almost like it was not lived in. It was reading to me more like what these guys thought something like that was like they were writing a story based on a cultural osmosis or something. I don't know. I don't know what their story is. They could have very well known people like this. I don't want to take that away from them. But it does have that. I don't want to say cliche, but it does have that sort of like we've heard this sad tale of the rock and roller before kind of thing. Um, I don't know. That's my personal feeling on it. Yeah, it's like armchair drug addiction a little yeah. bit or something right. like that. Well, <laughs> yeah, and something like that. To, you know, I'll throw them a bone and say they touch on some ideas thematically in that way that are interesting. One of my favorite lines is um, to be so deep down underground, to be the only one who knows you've been buried alive. And I think that's an interesting point to say mm-hmm. what looks like being in the thick of it and what looks like living your art and having that realistic experience is actually like you're dying. It's harmful to you. And maybe their point is, yeah, we didn't live this and that's good. It's better to not demand (laughs) that our rock stars kill themselves (laughs) to make cool songs. I mean, fair enough. Uh, Yeah. When when you look at the video for this one, it's got, it's like this guy who's like, at the end of his rope and he's shooting up drugs he's driving through the desert and there's ladies in the back who are dropping acid and having sex with each other and stuff it's very classic rock and roll casualty kind of song but yeah maybe it it might even be like what you're saying it may be like them not poking fun at it but at least saying like boy we're glad this isn't us <laughs> a little bit i mean again I'm, I'm trying to be charitable here and not feel like yeah it's it's a little hollow um because i think it could go both ways i also feel like it, it this was kind of an overall note I had for the album, but I think there are songwriters who sometimes write about a very real visceral thing and then they kind of leave it, right? There's not, they're not writing a metaphor. They're writing about a thing, a real thing. And that's the metaphor comes from the fan base or maybe they go and do a pass over, they change a few words so that it works better. And then I think there are folks who are writing and they're trying to write toward a metaphor. And this album for this group, I don't know about, belly button but feels like they're writing toward a metaphor most of the time yeah and i think if if that's the intent then yeah this stuff works a lot better than if they're trying to write toward something that's very real and visceral and it turns out it just never happened or they just didn't get the feel right because as metaphor goes you know i i really like it but it is it is sort of an intellectual assessment of messianic you know, rock stardom and what that does to the person in that position or what it can do ultimately. It's not so much the, yeah, the emotional touchstone for we went through this, maybe you went through this. It's not that. Yeah. And, and I may just be being cynical about it. I, I like your take better than mine. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, when you watch the video, I think the thing that it, again, it didn't have me roll my eyes, but it definitely had me like <laughs> cock an eyebrow when like at the end, they do this biblical like pieta thing and there's like three wise men outside of the guy's car and there's a fucking camel oh my god bible imagery and it was giving me big like again melodrama that difference between queen and the beach boys where queen is using melody to make this baroque sharp contrast 
whereas the Beach Boys are doing it in a more pastoral sort of way. Yeah. Almost the difference between Impressionism and, and Baroque painting. But that said, this one has, I think, of all the tracks on the record, with the exception of maybe one or two, the most Beach Boys sounding harmony I think you get in the thing. And it was at this point where I was like, oh no, these guys do like the Beach Boys. <laughs> they just also like Queen. Um, in fact, I found this quote. It's uh, from, I think it's from Sturmer, who says, the Beach Boys would never have done it this way with really hard verses surrounding it and a banjo at the end of the song. We really take pride in exploring the arrangements our strength is in incorporating a lot of different things and twisting them in a way that they haven't been twisted before, which said to me, oh, enough people must have been telling him that you guys are doing a Beach Boys impression where he felt the need to d- defend himself, I guess, a little bit. And, and and rightfully so. It's not a one-for-one necessarily, but you can't hear the influence. Yeah, I, I like it when that influence comes through via the backing vocals, and where, but the lead vocal is still more Freddie Mercury. I think that works really well yeah. for this group where there's a hard front but the back is that is sort of the meadow you know kind of right. f- out of the rocky outcropping or something i like that for these guys uh in particular i don't know that other bands would necessarily do as well with with that kind of sense uh well that brings us to track seven here bye 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 not that one the other one <laughs> This maybe has my favorite opening to any song on the album. Uh, again, there's there's still tons of little shit everywhere. Uh, and I don't know, maybe you know this because you're way more versed in this stuff than I am. What is this type of stomp song called? Is this is there like a name for this type of dum 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 dum? You know that I call it polka. Is it polka, though? It's very polka-informed, and the reason I think I want to call it polka is because Ben Folds has a song called The Last Polka, which is very similar to this in, in that feel where it's the umpa. The umpa yeah. is the driving right. force. And maybe you yeah. do other stuff on top of it. Maybe you change, you know, it's got rock and it's got other things in it. But if it's umpa, I think it's polka. I think that's what this is. Yeah, maybe. I guess when I'm thinking of polka, and I should turn in my Polish card um because i'm getting this horribly wrong possibly but when i think polka i'm thinking that that uh i'm not thinking but maybe i'm just adding extra beats and i don't know maybe this is just more circus music because the last what i thought the last track is circus music yeah right exactly yeah it's got that circusy sort of thing now there's a when done poorly again like we keep saying this, like when done poorly i feel like that comes across as hokey or sort of, I don't know, silly, pretentious, possibly even. But here, I think it works again because they're doing it with enough gusto that you're like, oh, okay, you, you can sort of buy in. It's another one of these types of tracks that lives on the Green Day album Warning. Virginia was a lot less 
similar kind of thing. It, it, with when done, when done with when you own it, when you really do own it, you can make it work. And there's that beautiful texture in that. There's like a la 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 sort of bridge. Yep. Uh, that has those little bass stings and that mandolin. It's just really, really pretty tuned, too. Can I say, I think that is, so the the theme here is sort of this um, this breakdown of this marriage, you know, the, the lyrical themes. And I think we're meant to feel like we're at like a wedding. And this is like the, like a, almost like a Greek wedding or something like that, where there's this, you know, mandolin yeah. would be there. But we're supposed to know that this is not gonna, they're not gonna make it. Interesting. That's cool. Yeah. Like the bridge in particular. Like, I feel like we're just dancing at a wedding and no one really knows why they're there. Like, we did not think <laughs> this was going to happen. These guys, I give it a year. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love that interpretation. Again, I was struggling to find any meaning in these things. So I'm finding it awesome to hear you actually tell me what these are about. Because I was, the music was just hitting me in, the, in that way. But I love that. That's really great. I don't have too much more to say about Bye Bye Bye. brings me to uh, track eight here, All Is Forgiven. another one that is a little heavier on the record at least in the way it starts again still a lot of stuff going on but in this one i was really wowed by andy's drumming yeah Uh, he is a very good drummer when you listen to these songs that shit is tight like that he does not leave that pocket he's living there and it's got that really i don't know what you'd call it that sound that I guess Phil Collins helped create where the drumming, there's not a lot of, it's like snappy. It's really um, boxed in. I don't know what you call it, but um, I really like that sound <laughs> for drumming. And I, I feel like he does a, a, a nice version of that late eighties, early nineties style drumming in the sense that it still sounds like it's being played by a person while it is still hyper tight. Right. Um, impressive i mean that's what impresses me about him as a drummer i think i hear this and i go oh my god a human can do that that's crazy and yeah they took all the reverb out of it he's got like 18 toms in there i have to imagine (laughs) and it sounds amazing and then i'm like are you also doing this live and singing at the same time and you're and the the vocal meter is not the backing meter it's it's a halftime like it's i could never have one half of my brain in the vocal meter and the other half of my brain in the drumming meter i would explode uh yeah and plus they they also put that hard rocking guitar on top of that harmony and yeah it's really damn impressive like just really really nice i mean if they are going for a queen impression i think this one gets the closest to actually sounding like queen in that way but it also has a bunch of elo on it too for me, anyway, personally, the, the, the harmonies and stuff. I was going to say, I always call out the best vocal, like, pop harmony is that after the first chorus with that ah, that just kind of like like a firework in the air, that ah. Yeah. 
And then it right. just, oh, yeah. I will listen to the song, get to that, and then skip to the next track sometimes. Is this the one where that fades really quickly? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's a highlight of the album, that moment, because it is so jarring. You're yes. like, you're waiting for the end of it, and then it... Whoop, exactly. And there's an echo of it in the middle section where they yell out, liar. And it's a similar, like, multi-part <laughs> harmony. And it's just, it's stuff yeah. like that. And maybe that's the ELO part. I, I know... I think I know hits from ELO, but I'd love to hear like what else you're seeing in there from them because I'm I'm not as familiar with ELO as I should be. It's in the harmonies, uh, the ELO harmonies, but all, with a lot of electronic manipulation, and maybe that's what I was responding to with what you're talking about, where that with the sharp, oh yeah, you know, that's very ELO to me because it is transparently artificial, but that's okay because that's the intent. Mm. But that's kind of what I'm hearing when it comes to ELO stuff. And somebody in here, I think one of the producers actually did work with ELO, one of those hit makers, I think. Interesting. Um, or maybe it was the A&R guy who had worked with ELO a little bit. But uh, I did I did find their name pop up on here once or twice. But yeah, all is forgiven. It, it's good. What is it? Throw away your daggers and pills because all is forgiven. Though we've bitten off the nipple of human kindness, all is forgiven. I was thinking that maybe this one was about the departure of Faulkner and... Manning. I thought this was maybe about those bandmates leaving. I think you're right. I think there's a couple of songs on here that are directly pulling out of that. Too Much Too Little Too Late is another one where I'm like, yeah, this is, you're angry and we're hearing about it. I think this one though, you know, there's the immediate story and then there's the metatextual, the the metaphorical. I think the immediate one is like a spurned lover, but I think you're exactly Mm. right that that's how it feels when people leave when people do things you can't agree with and it forces you to depart even in the context of a band or a business or a friendship or something like that so i think you're spot on um, and i think there's also this other sort of immediate layer where you could you could read it as a, a spurned lover song if you wanted which is probably the intent I, mean, I might just be reading too much into it but that leads us to track nine here which i don't really have a lot of notes on but it is i think my favorite or my second favorite it's in the top three on the album Russian Hill. I dreamt about a tranquil Sunday drive A sensory lullaby So funnily enough, every song on the record is a co-write with Andy and Roger, except this one. This is an Andy solo. And I thought that that was odd because I learned that after I had realized that it was a highlight for me. And just really interesting that it's not terribly complicated. So it's clear what Roger's bringing to the tracks. He's bringing maybe some of those left turns, like I was saying. But it is an interesting chord progression because it almost sounds like a little flat. It almost sounds a little like wrong or out of tune or something. But to me, it really, really works. And I don't know what it's about. I think it's maybe about them touring. Because like, there's some of the lines in the song that talk about, I've reached the pinnacle or I've, it was time to put the childish things away and exchange it for a car it sounds a little bit like a growing up sort of thing and maybe achieving your goals your dreams maybe they were on tour in russia or some shit i don't know and that's russian i don't know but it did sound a little like that to me and 
yeah, in the end, I didn't write too much about it. I just love this track. I don't know what it is about it. It's just, maybe it's because it's, con- as far as contrast goes, it's really the only clean, straightforward track on the record. <laughs> yeah, and that's interesting you say that, because it's got an odd time signature. It's a 3-3-2. It's got this, like, push-pull feel on the back. The jangling 12-string, I think you're right, sounds out of tune, and I think that's on purpose. It's odd, but not unpleasant. Yeah, and so I I, I looked at this up because I was like, "What is this freaking song about?" Oh yeah, please tell me. I'm dying to know. So allegedly, this is all allegedly. Russian Hill is a neighborhood in San Francisco, and I guess Andy had an apartment there, and he was selling it. He was never there as part of the touring, I guess. And in selling it, he was sort of reflecting on what a weird place it was. It's in the um, like hate Ashbury kind of area, I guess. So formerly super hippie-ish now, very, those people are all incredibly wealthy now, or a lot of them are. (laughs) And it's him sort of having this dreamscape understanding of when he got there versus now when he's leaving. I don't understand a, a damned thing about the lyrics. You know, there's there's lines I love, like, only Eden is for millionaires, and just the way that's sung, and it's that millionaires is held out over the end that I think's beautiful. But, uh, you know, other than this very literal, like, here's what it's about thing that I read, I, I can't really tap into it either, but I don't care. It's, yeah. it's so good. <laughs> it's so good. And I think you're exactly right about, you know, this is solo credit for Andy. This is what you get when you have two super technically talented, very creative people. When you bounce ideas off each other, you get joining a fan club. You get weird, you know, let's keep pumping it up. When it's just Andy, you get crazy jazz stuff and flutes and clarinets, (laughs) but you don't have Roger amping up the, you know, just saying like, what if we do it more? And I think that's, I I agree with you. I think that's really nice here to just have a straight as you can get on with guys who are writing in 332. It's just, yeah, it's just a good track and it doesn't have the craziness that some of the other ones have. Yeah, it lets you off the hook. It's like a nice breath, which again is, is speaks to what you were talking about earlier with the sequencing the album is sequenced very very well and this back half as i mentioned is full of my favorites this next one he's my best friend (laughs) i think is my favorite on the album this one russian hill and new mistake those three are my favorites and i think it's because this song is just a slightly rewritten i'm the greatest when you hear it, it's boom, 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 boom. And I was like, oh, that's where I'm hearing this from. That notwithstanding, it is a great track. And it's funny, I was watching a video of their live performance and it's it's all super grainy and you can't really see it too well. But he goes, I hope you all dance this one. It's the closest we get 
to writing a dance song or a dance track or whatever he said. And here we go or whatever. And so I guess they even identified that this was a almost anomalous for them in a sense that this was a little dancey, you know, it's a little. Yeah, it's it's got a good yeah pop sensibility to it. Are we not going to talk about how it's about a penis? Okay, so now (laughs) it's all becoming clear to me. Um, I did not know that. It is 100% a song about his dick. And it's it's funny. The funniest thing to me is that, like, without knowing that, it's still good. You you don't need that. But did not know it. Now you're going to have to go back and listen through it and just catch. I mean, it's it's every good pun that they could have thought of. I think. Oh no! They Uh, just got it in there. I've known him all my life. Okay, it seems so inconceivable. At 13, we shook hands, but we've always been inseparable. He's cinnamon on my toast. We're so close. That's not to say we haven't had our share of arguments. He's so unpredictable, he winks acknowledgments. When I would rather he closed his eye than push me aside. My hands, a five-leaf clover. It's Palm Sunday over and over. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. All right, well, I don't know if you've ruined this one for me or made it a lot better. It does make my third note on this. I enjoy those tasteful maracas seem a little more hilarious. <laughs> he um, also does. He loves them too. <laughs> you you don't need a brain to have a stroke of genius? Yep. <sighs> oh my god. Yeah, there's a line in here that it, it's it's a back it's a backing vocal line and it's like when you're a powder keg for powder puff, so like powder puff football girls in high school. <laughs> and I was just like, man, this is this is every Every line they had, a, they were writing it down for months, just like we could get that line in there. Ooh, what about this one? And it's so, I love it. It's so funny, but it's a good song. It's a well-written song. It's, it's not yeah. pop garbage. It's not a throwaway comic song like a lot of comedy songs are. They're, yeah. they're just not good musically or something like that. This is funny, and I, <laughs> I like it musically. Well, the jury's still out on whether that's going to ruin or, or amplify my, my love for it. But that does bring us to track 11 here, Too Much, Too Little, Too Late. Now, this song, I'm maybe I'm going to say this controversially. I find this one a little schmaltzy, and I would have cut it personally. I think that you get this song better in other places on the record. Again, with the understanding of there, it is still good. You know, I still like it. And we were talking about middle eights. This one has a really, really nice middle eight in it. But again, I just didn't, I don't know. I don't love this one too. What, what, what's your thoughts on too much, too little, too late? Uh, so, so this is again, the 
intellectually interesting song for me. I like the lyrics, but I think this song almost lampoons itself. There's a line in here, spare me the vague, not so clever couplets, the one I would have loved when I was you. And I think sometimes this song, I'm like, it's a little too clever. It's not doing anything, like you said, that other songs aren't doing and doing better. Yeah. I would love it as a, a song I know and have heard and have as, you know, it was a B-side or it was a it was on yeah. a soundtrack or something like that. But I agree. I don't think it needs to be on this album. It is one of the other songs though that is I think very clearly about the tensions between mm. the previous iteration of the band that, you know, led to the creation of this album. And I don't I don't want to lose that from this album completely. Yeah. So I don't I don't know if that means that I would prefer All Is Forgiven to have been a little bit more forward with that or to have been better received. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of torn. I like I, I, I could see get jettisoning it. Um but I also, you know, I love what happened to the Musketeers of Chesterfield, tobacco swords behind smoky shields. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Again, lots of little stuff in there to keep you interested. Uh, yeah, I, I think where I'd landed on this one is Especially knowing he set out, I say, I keep saying he like it's just Andy, that Andy and Roger set out to make a quote masterpiece. Like if you're setting out to make a masterpiece, I feel like you're maybe not going to make one. Um, or, 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 and that's not entirely true because I guess the bride guy set out to make a masterpiece, although that didn't come out for thirty years. But because I know that that was the intention, this to me read like we're. So winging for those fences because it's big and blown out and over the top and that's where i get that pop ballad schmaltz that i just don't i'm just like guys i don't know if i don't know if you needed to do this um, because you do mention all is forgiven and i think there's a lot of similarity between these two tracks in, in that way like i said is it bad no it's not bad is the intent probably justified yes probably it's just to my ear i would have preferred track 12 here brighter day to come a little bit earlier and close out the record because I think they very expertly know that this is the way to end this album. I think we. I like circus. We'll we'll throw polka out. We'll push yeah. it aside. And I think circus. <laughs> yeah. This has some of my favorite things in this album. There's a line in here that my sister and I loved almost to the point where we almost got like tattoos of it, which is a very. Oh, can I guess? Can I guess? Yes. Is it one foot in the grave and one foot on a banana peel? You did it. You nailed it. I did it. I yeah. did it. We did it. For the Seeker of Thrills. It's the best line in the album, Oh my God. It's so good. And it's such a... This song has such an immediacy of what you're seeing. It's so visual. It's so weird and creepy. I've never even tried to explore if it's got deeper meaning. I just think it's about weird, crazy circus times and creepy stuff. And it just... It's so good. There's a Nirvana nod here that's amazing. Is there? Yeah. I think... what, what Where is... Oh, I had this in my notes. Um... Come as you are, as you were. If you prefer, you can change. Ah, interesting. And that's another timing thing where maybe it doesn't work out. But yeah, I I love this. Yeah, I like this one a lot too. 
it's a piece of ambiance to end it. I, I would say that it's more ambiance maybe than song at certain junctures, but I, th- none of that bothers me because I like the ambiance so much. I think that his best vocal on the record too, Andy's best vocal for me personally. But what I love about this one too is that it ends, and I don't know if you caught this, but it ends on the same note. I think it's the same note as the ta- as Hush. And yep. so that's another one where I'm like, okay, they set out to make a quote masterpiece. They did what McCartney does, which is just stick a little bit of the front at the end and then everything seems intentional. <laughs> you know, It's like, we, we're on to you, Paul. Like, we know, we know. Um, but I also like that. And I, I'm a sucker for that. I love a callback on a record. Love a callback. Well, um, here's the nice thing about listening to this on CD. When your CD loops back around to the front, it's not only... Oh. It's not just the same note. It's the same sparkly, like, bling, the little bell tones. Fun. I think it loops. I think you just listen to this album in Fun. a circle forever until you're dead. Well, isn't that the, the coolest thing? I I keep forgetting, you know, we talk about a lot of older records on this show, and I listen to a lot of older music, and I keep forgetting of that quality that they must have been aware of and were playing with. Of course you're right about that. Of course. That's that is awesome. And that's only something you get from the CD era, yeah. isn't it? It's the only something you could possibly get from the CD era. Can't get that with cassettes, can't get that with eight tracks, can't get that even streaming. You don't really get because there's an auto stop at the end of the record. That is fun. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's one of the reasons I love it cuz it's a long outro. I mean, it's a long song, 6 minutes and some change, but you don't want to skip the ending because you hear it's like oh it's still going somewhere it's the, where's it going and you're like right. oh we're we're back where we started that's that's amazing and it might even make you listen to the whole thing over again which I don't know a lot of albums that do that. that well what a perfect way to to end the album discussion here should we do a little bit of uh, reception go for Joe? it because I, I I don't know anything about how this was received other than I know people liked it later they liked it. 20 years after it came out, more than they liked it when it came out. Gentlemen, you've just recorded your first number one. Wow, an award statue! Oh, it's a Grammy! Even though they went all out and they were soup du jour for a couple years, uh, this album performed worse then Belly Button, it uh, peaked at number 162 on the Billboard Top 200, although it did hit number 21 in the UK, so it was top 40 over there, which is, you know, nothing to sneeze at necessarily, although it's just sort of a kind of a thud considering the buildup that was surrounding it. But uh, it was reviewed pretty well. I mean, um, I see it got an A from Entertainment Weekly, Chicago Tribune, two and a half stars. Mm-hmm. Q Magazine gave it four stars. I'll, I'll use this quote here. So when uh, this is from Far Out Magazine in 2015, and the writer here, Tony Curran, wrote that spilt milk had improved with age and said it was a wonderfully unpretentious, I'm not I 100% <laughs> agree with that, uh, it doesn't bother me that it's a little pretentious, but I don't know if I 100% agree with that. Homage to pop music in its essential form. Catchiness and melody are keynotes here. From the soaring, joining a fan club, to the psychedelic pop doodlings of Sabrina, Paste, and Plato, 
the band explore a range of possibilities within the pop format and well beyond. Also from John Myers here on the Vinyl District said the album was sharper and far more vibrant than its predecessor with Clever Hooks Galore, which I also agree with. So I guess everybody seems to be landing in a similar spot. And I, I read some other reviews, which kind of amounted to the same thing where you're like, I sometimes can't tell this album from its influences. And you could either set out to decide that that's a good thing or a bad thing, or you're indifferent about it. Where I land on it is, do I think, does it shock me that these guys didn't quote unquote make it more than they did? It does not shock me. Do I love this music? Yes. I mean, I'm a big Brendan Benson fan. This music is if anyone likes out there likes Brendan Benson, you'll like this. I really encourage all of our listeners, particularly our listeners who we know are out there to listen to a lot of early 70s music. Uh, this is that. This is that with 90s technology, basically. And a couple of really invested individuals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I can also appreciate that. As I've said on this show before, I'm a man who finds himself aggressively interested in things. And it sounds like as though these guys are in a similar vein. The last note I had here was just a fun fact about Andy after the group split. He wound up writing the music for the cartoons Hi Hi Puffy Yami Yumi, Teen Titans, and Ben 10, which I find to be adorable. Yeah, the Wikipedia spiral I went on on him was just a, a stream of like, oh, that's cool, and like things I hadn't necessarily oh, no. consumed, but I was like, good for him. Hey, do you listen to Polaris by any... No. Oh, fuck. I think we're going to have to have you back on and listen to Polaris. There's a group called Polaris, which you may know from the Pete and Pete theme song. Yes. And they do a couple other... In fact, they do all of the music from Pete and Pete. And they only ever made one album, <laughs> the music from Pete and Pete. And it is a, f a favorite album of mine. And uh, it was one I was going to drag Ryan through. So maybe I'm gonna, I have to have to drag, drag you through this thing. But it's, again, it's another early 90s... 60s influence sort of thing the difference between this and polaris is that polaris came out and then we're still making this type of music but wore flannel so they were trying to blend in uh, <laughs> there we go but anyway i i'm a sucker for all that shit you know i just absolutely love it and i am a sucker for doing fun episodes like these with folks such as yourself joe this was so much fun thank you for joining me on the now hear this podcast is there anything you want to plug <laughs> while you're here do you have anything you want to like plug like but where, where can people find your music is your music online anywhere can we no and it should it should stay that way i i, I think <laughs> uh the only things that i've ever done musically that i'm actually close to proud of are it's the music i made with ryan back in the day and and i think anybody who is interested in hearing that can contact you and you can pass them on to me and I will I will share what ridiculousness happened in the early 2000s in Ryan's recording studio in his basement. <laughs> well, why don't we do this? Is there a song that we should play out with? Oh my God. I'm going to just besmirch Ryan's name if I throw this out there. There's a song called Goodbye and I think it's People used to call it our Strokes song. Uh, Ooh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I can I can help you find that, or if you don't already have access, and why not? Let's have a little bit of that on the way out. Well, goodbye, Joe. Goodbye to our listeners. Enjoy every sandwich, and we'll see you next time.
opinion about the album we discussed today? Contact us at at now hear this podcast on Instagram, at now hear this pod on Twitter, Facebook.com slash now hear this podcast, or email us at now hear this official at gmail.com. See you next time. Well, hey, Ryan. Hey, Paul. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm here to tell the listeners that if they'd like to contribute mm. to help keeping these Now Hear This episodes coming, well, they can donate featuring the wonderful new donation technology that ACAST has developed for us. That's right. ACAST has helped us out. They host the show. Yeah, our hosts, ACAST, have made it really easy to donate to the show. They have an ACAST supporter feature, and there's a link in the show description that you can follow to kick a couple bucks for the show. It can be five bucks, a hundred bucks, less than a dollar. We don't care. Yeah, just something to keep the lights on. It's all out of pocket, and we do this out of love, and that's it. And we love you all for listening. Thank you very much for doing that. Couldn't said it better myself. It's okay. All right, well, bye then. <laughs>